Hallelujah. Father, it is my prayer today that each one of us gathered in this place today upon the hearing of your word proclaimed that your spirit would use the proclamation of these scriptures even as we have joined our hearts and our voices together to sing of your praise that our hearts might burn within us. We think of the two disciples, our forebearers on the road to Emmaus, not realizing at first, eyes yet closed, the reality of Jesus Christ, the risen Son of Man, God in flesh, walking beside them on the way. But after you were made known to them in the breaking of the bread, they said to one another, did our hearts not burn within us? And certainly, Lord, their eyes were then opened to see not only that Jesus Christ stood beside them, but also that Jesus Christ is revealed in all the scriptures, from the law to the prophets, the writings, the poetry, all the way through to the testimony of the apostles. The word that we hold in our hands and hear proclaimed this day is all about Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, through and through, whose death on Calvary made a way for man to be reconciled to a holy God after we were eternally separated from him to the sin that plagued the human race since the fall. Lord, these themes hold out hope for us eternally, and in them we see Jesus Christ exalted. So I pray that the ears of our understanding, the eyes of our spiritual eyesight would be open this day to behold Jesus Christ, and in beholding him, that we would further glorify him through obedience and praise as fruit of this message going forth. Finally, we pray this day if there are any lost whose hearts have not been transformed, whose eyes have not been opened, whose hearts have not been resurrected, that the preaching of the gospel would bring new life, new birth in their hearts today, that they might turn from their sin, repent, and believe that Jesus Christ is the only way, truth, and life to the, to the eternal praise of his great name. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. Amen. Well, I'm thankful this morning that he has gathered us as saints in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, to consider his holy word this day, which brings us to our Genesis series. And let me turn you there, if you would, and as you're able, to chapter 38, where we will consider a title for today's message, Judah's Troubles. I apologize in advance if I get my title mixed up with Jacob's Troubles, I had a prior sermon by a similar title, entitled Jacob's Troubles, and today we consider his son, the fourth of his sons, Judah, and the troubles that plagued him. We have a theme here, several of them, that continue through the account in the Genesis record of the covenant family. There's much to learn here, even though this passage of Scripture is heavy indeed. So this passage of Scripture deals with the depravity, the wickedness of the human heart in pretty extreme and graphic fashion. It reminds us that we live in a fallen world. We'll be reminded of that today, but also that in spite of this, the great hope for salvation is no match for the schemes of Satan. The aim of this morning's message, therefore, is to understand the atrocities of sin in the context of superior grace. To understand the atrocities of the human heart, the sinful condition, and the wickedness that plagues us since Adam and Eve, our forebears, our parents, fell in the garden to understand the atrocities of sin in the context of superior grace. God's grace is greater still 
though sin abounds. With that introduction and your hearts and Bibles opened, would you stand as you're able out of reverence and listen to the entire chapter of Genesis 38 as we behold God's word this day. Here is the inerrant word of God. Verse 1, it happened at the time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Cherizib when she bore him. Verse 6, And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he would, have, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah, to his sheep shears. He and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, wrapped herself up, and sat at the entrance of Anim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. <clears throat> for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He said, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on garments of her widowhood. Then Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back to the pledge or the pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. And he asked the man of the place, where is the cult prostitute who is at Anaim at the roadside? They said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this goat, and you did not find her. 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man in whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. 26. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. 27. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back the hand, behold, his brother came out and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. 
This is the word of God. You may be seated. So we can see here by obvious examples that Jacob's household continues to be marked by covenant dysfunction and infidelity now in the second generation. This, his fourth son, Judah, through whom the genealogy of hope would continue, nevertheless is caught up in a whirlwind, a whirlwind of rebellion, debauchery, deception, tragedy and trauma, sudden death, the judgment of God, prostitution, even incest. Here again, in this passage in Genesis, Moses interrupts the narrative That is the grand story of salvation, the redemptive history of God's people, with this sort of parentheses account, if you will, that reminds us the effects of the fall. They're great, and they demand among humanity, or in these, the presence of these great effects of the fall among humanity, demand for divine intervention and salvation. Without the man is hopeless, depraved, and lost, and acts out in these kinds of ways we've seen in our text today. So mankind stands in need and is dying in his sin and under the judgment of God in hope for a coming Messiah. And this hope for a coming Messiah against all odds is preserved through an unlikely covenant son. These are repeated themes in the book of Genesis. This is clarity, this clarity in identifying sin as such with frequency regularly throughout the Bible serves a purpose for the soul of the reader, a number of them, but let me Just give you one application in introduction. These stories remind us that the Bible is very honest about the wickedness of the human heart. It also reminds us that we, oftentimes, not so much. We're not that honest often as we recount our own stories, write our own biographies and autobiographies and our blogs and our memoirs and our diaries, or just recounting our testimony or the story of our life or thinking back on where our heart was really at as we negotiated the trials and the difficulties and the challenges of our coming-of-age experience, let's say, our young adulthood, our early years in a vocation and so forth. We're not that honest very often. And this clarity, however, that the Scripture offers is in contrast to what we tend to do, gloss over the wickedness and the corruption of our own hearts. And in this way, the Bible serves a purpose for the soul of us, the reader. It reminds us that everyday life, complacency and the wickedness of our sin and and the the familiarity with our human existence easily dulls the perception and discernment of the wickedness of our sin, if we're not careful. We must be vigilant and remain alert to the evil that surrounds us and but for the grace of God inhabits us. Thusly, we will remain alert to the great need of salvation for ourselves and our neighbors. Moses' record of Judah's family reminds us of times in redemptive history where there was no recognized godly authority in the land, like in the book of Judges when it says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, similar conditions as well as those moments of depraved desperation. Perhaps you've already heard some parallels in your memory, like the women of Lot's da- women like Lot's daughters, who seeking their own desires and to propagate their own families took advantage of his drunkenness in an incestuous relationship. Here we go again. Perhaps we're mindful and we can recall 
similar similarities in the future as well, like the corruption of Solomon due to his pagan polygamy, taking many wives among the unbelievers, and eventually his heart stolen away to worship their same gods. Yet, the message of the Scriptures in our passage today is this. In the darkness of all of this wicked, sinful filth, from man's eyes, presumably irredeemable, this irredeemable sinfulness, aside from a miracle, is the backdrop of darkness against which the light, the glorious hope of the coming Messiah shines all the brighter. Sometimes the Bible sets the stage with the darkness of sin so that the light of the expectation, the glorious redemption of the messianic hope and promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ shines all the brighter. And this would be one of those passages. I submit to you that our passage today, as heavy, weighty, and disturbing as it is, is best and better understood in light of future events. So I'll be heading for us today, understanding Judah's troubles in the light or in the context of future events. When we see what follows, it helps us to understand the reason for the record. Point number one today, the salvation of God's people. Understanding Jacob's or excuse me, Judah's troubles in light of the context of future events, even the salvation of God's people. Quickly, the other three points will be the testimony of grace, the kingdom lineage, and we'll close with the holiness of Christ. But first of all, the salvation of God's people, saved from what, you might ask? Salvation is the proclamation of the evangelical church from day one. You must be saved. You must be born again. You need to be rescued. Rescued from what? Well, this is why the gospel makes no sense without the proclamation of sin. And this is why, as Gene has been unveiling for us in the book of Romans and his sermons, it starts with an analysis, an assessment of the depravity and wickedness of the human heart. And no man has any excuse. And none of our self-righteous will stand before the Lord. And no one is worthy to judge where we really stand before Him aside from Christ, the holy and pure standard of eternal righteousness forever and ever. But when we subject ourselves and all mankind stands before that holy and wrath-filled God who holds in His hand holiness and the power to do something about it, if anyone would transgress His glorious uh, name and His uh, will and intentions in His law, when we stand before Him, we find with the author of Romans, Paul, that all men indeed are guilty. <clears throat> and thus, God's people needed to be saved from something then, as we, His people, need to be saved from something now, and that would be the wickedness of the human heart, independent of the transforming work of the Spirit of God. God's people were in desperate need of salvation. Salvation from what? Their sin. But how did this sin manifest? Well, they right now we see, or in this passage of Genesis, we see the danger that the covenant family is in. They are in danger of total covenant disintegration. They are risking the loss of all godly distinctiveness by the temptation and direct steps to, of, toward being swallowed up by the pagan culture around them. God's people needed to be saved from the threat of the pagan culture that was swallowing them and risking entire and total covenant disintegration. God's people are supposed to be distinct, a royal priesthood set apart, different from the world, called out to shine for Him, 
to have a strong conviction and testimony and righteousness and a foundation and morality and a, a, a proclamation of these things, both in word and works. But if the surrounding culture tempts us and begins to swallow up our convictions, then we run the risk of what the people of the people of God at this time, covenant disintegration, losing our identity and the difference between us and the world, and therefore our ability in the New, Te- in New Testament terms to be salt and light. This covenant infidelity is pretty obvious, is it not? It takes place in as much as the fear of God was lost and also faithfulness and marriage. Mark those two down, by the way. Evidence of systemic covenant unfaithfulness. Evidence of systemic covenant infidelity. Two major ways that we see this in this text. It's true today as well. No fear of God and unfaithfulness in marriage. Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. Kids, I often ask you this question. Good idea or bad idea? Judah saw a Canaanite lady that he liked and decided he'd marry her. Bad idea. That's right. Why? Well, the Canaanites were not under the covenant blessing of the Lord. They were wicked idol worshipers. And just like we saw with Esau, who was attracted to the Canaanites, and just as we saw with Ishmael, and just as we saw with all those who were covenant, covenantally unfaithful, here we have Judah, the appointed covenant son, tempted by the same kinds of things. This daughter of the Canaanite, whose name was Shua, he took her and went into her. He doesn't seem to care too much for the law of God and for the covenant terms that he was called in his legacy and in his responsibility to, bear for, to carry forward to the next generation. So she conceives and bears a son, she bears another son and so forth. And we see things going from bad to worse. As the story progresses, eventually Judah sees a woman <clears throat> after he's lost his wife to death. He thinks that she's a prostitute for she covers her face. He turns to her at the roadside and says, and let me come in to you, prostitution, taking lightly the marriage vows of covenant. <clears throat> in this case, this sin of Judah is very evident. Now it says right here in verse seven, but Ur, Judah's firstborn was wicked in the sight of the Lord and the Lord put him to death. So there's evidence of consequences of sin that Judah is experiencing. And he later says this in verse 11, He withholds Shelah, his son, from his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Why? Because he feared that he would die, that is his son Shelah, like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. There's a fear that he would die, but I submit to you this is not the fear of the Lord. This is a sort of pragmatic or you could say superstitious fear. Judah, if he feared the Lord, would keep his vow and would have, when he came of age, supplied the kinsman redeemership, if you will, of his son Shelah to his daughter-in-law, Tamar. But Judah did not fear the Lord, did not make good on his vow. Instead, he saw Tamar as something like bad luck, and he didn't want his youngest son, now all his future legacy and name invested in this, his third son, to be risked to be that lady who's bad luck. So I'm not going to let him marry her. No fear of God and no faithfulness in marriage. This marks the covenant disintegration that is happening right now. Brothers and sisters in Christ, these are our forebears spiritually. This is the lineage of the Messiah that's struggling so. 
God's people needed salvation. The pagan culture was swallowing them up. And evidence of this corruption was showing up in no fear of God and no faithfulness in marriage. If these conditions were to stand and to proliferate one or two more generations, the covenant line would be wiped out, swallowed up in sin. No more Messiah. No more faithful witness. No more guarding the word of the Lord. No more oral tradition. No more future for Jesus Christ to be born according to the lineage of Abraham, so on and so forth. This is what God's people needed to be saved from. Their covenant unfaithfulness, evidenced by their fearlessness of God and their unfaithfulness in marriage. If we entertain these things today, just as the people did then, I submit to you, it'll disintegrate any people. Any people will lose their distinctiveness and their identity and be swallowed up by wickedness and the culture around them if they do not fear the Lord and are unfaithful in their marriage vows. Two relationships, the vertical relationship with the Lord, the first table of the law, the first four of the Ten Commandments. Second, the horizontal relationship to others. And this, in this is a summary of the whole law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. These two things comprise the foundation, the substance, the fundamentals of any strong and enduring society. And I think it's easy to draw applications for our day, is it not? Is faithfulness and marriage in its terms as prescribed by the Word of God, immutably by the Word of God, upheld consistently in our culture today? And how about the fear of the Lord? Do people go on with a high hand sinning presumptuously, not thinking that they'll ever suffer the consequences of an eternal judgment for taking lightly the word of God? Yes, we see this all around us. And what do we also see? We see the disintegration of our nation and our land and people. So we need to cry out for salvation as well. And it begins in the human heart. We are convicted of our sin. We turn from it and trust our Savior, Messiah, Jesus Christ. But as the fruits of salvation and repentance work out in a people, what will we see? An increase in the fear of the Lord and an increase in faithfulness one to another, yea, even marriages. So there's examples of sin. We could go through them one by one, but let's just touch on them very briefly. What kinds of sin are we dealing with here? Evidence of wickedness, covenant infidelity. Well, there's Ur's sin. We're not sure exactly what it was, but it was so great that God just simply put him to death. Wickedness unto death. Ur was properly killed by God. Ur was properly, rightly killed by God, verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he eventually, fate took him out. No. Oh, he eventually made a dumb decision, and his fast life of drugs and rock and roll and sleeping around caught up to him. He caught a disease, he died. No, the Lord put him to death. Modern man cannot suffer this unequivocal truth. The Lord puts everyone to death who does not ultimately repent and thereby gain eternal life. You know, we're obsessed with the question, how did they die? Was it a car wreck? Was it a bad decision? Did they overdose? Was it fentanyl on the streets? Was it gang violence? You know, was it a shooting death? Was it a school a shooting or something that took out? You know, was it a plane crash? And so obituaries almost always, that's the first question that comes to our mind. But seldom do we wrestle with in this culture, why did they die? 
There's a greater cause than that mere physical circumstances like gravity and a plane failing or an overdose on drugs or something. Ultimately, the reason why we die is because the wages of sin is death. God kills people in his judgment if they do not repent. Modern man cannot abide this clarity of the judgment of God. And to the degree that that does not sound right in our minds is the degree that we do not fear the Lord. The Lord has the right to take life. He granted it in the first place. And there's two in the uh, lineage or two of the children of Judah that he just killed right away. He killed Onan and he killed Ur. Why? Because of their sin. And Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife, perform your duty. Uh, later this would, become, this would become known as leveret marriage, where the brother furthers the eldest offspring by marrying the widow. But Onan does not like this idea. He refuses to follow through in this task. And what he did, verse 10, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. So this question comes to mind. Was the sin of Ur and the sin of Onan any more wicked than the sin of Judah and the sin of Tamar? Well, I submit the answer is no. Is prostitution worthy of death? Absolutely. Is uh, paying a prostitute, as Judah did, worthy of death? Absolutely. So why did God spare Tamar, and eventually we'll see Judah, and extend grace unto them, but take judgment, his prerogative to judge immediately, it would seem upon Ur and Onan. Well, this is the mystery of God's grace and judgment that we don't fully know the answer to. But we know if we have a problem with it, there's a problem with us. In the book of Romans, it also says, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I will judge whom I will judge. And if you understand, and who are you, Potter, to argue with that? Or to say, that's not fair. I'm not going to believe in a God like that. My idea of Christianity is totally different. I'm going to make up my own you know, modified version. I'm going to adjust it until it sounds good enough to me so I'm not embarrassed or uncomfortable by its reality. This is what sinners do who lose the fear of God. But when we understand that God justly and righteously can instantly take our life because of our sin, we then can understand the grace of God in the death of Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus have to die? Because if he did not, if he did not take the punishment that our sin deserves by his own death on Calvary, then we would suffer the fate of Ur, and we would suffer the fate of Onan. Judah and Tamar were spared. They were not spared because they were more meritorious. They were spared by the grace of God. So Judah's sin, Tamar's sin, Ur's sin, Onan's sin, it's there featured for us to realize that God's people needed salvation. And in this context then, you see that the exile unto Egypt is going to be a grace. This chapter sets the tone for the grace of God intervening in his providence through a famine to remove Judah and company from the Holy Land to take refuge in Egypt. Why? Well, in part, yes, so they will be fed and saved that way, but also so that they will be separated from the corrupting influences of the pagan culture that surrounded them. This was the grace of exile. You see God's sovereign hand at work, selling Joseph into slavery. This is the work of the Lord in his providence to prepare a way for his people to be rescued, 
to be pulled out and through the grace of exile to be separated from those corrupting and perverting influences that he may preserve for himself a people. God has the right and prerogative to do this. And there are often times in church history where through adversity and through exile and through persecution, God will maintain a distinction between his own and the pagan culture around us. There's a problem if we blend too much and you can't tell the difference. That's a real issue. Adversity, exile, and persecution, not so much, especially if that difference by God's sovereign hand allows the true church to be distinct and different from the world and to maintain her faithfulness to the Lord and her identity and her desperation on Him as she cries out for her salvation. God has done this before. He's doing it now in some places of the earth. He could do it if He chooses with us in our day, and He did it at this time. We see the danger, and we see God stepping in in His grace in manifold ways. So understanding Judah's troubles is easier in the context of future events, even the salvation of God's people from the corrupting influences through the grace of exile. Secondly, understanding Judah's troubles in light of the testimony of grace. As I alluded to before, there's a big difference between Ur and Onan and Judah and Tamar. God's grace, this passage testifies to the degree of change in Judah and how amazing His grace truly is. We sing that song, it's a favorite of the church for centuries now. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We don't often think of ourselves as wretched as the verses I suggest we just read. But if the grace of God can save uh, a Tamar, if the grace of God can save a Judah, then it is indeed amazing grace. We see God's grace unto Judah. In spite of his great sin, he comes, I suggest, to a point of repentance and self-awareness in verse 26. Turn there with me. So we continue to read. The story unfolds, and Judah's sin is about to be found out. About three months, verse 24, later Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. Listen to this self-righteous hypocrite. Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. <clears throat> oh, really? You're going to burn your daughter-in-law because she's pregnant by an out-of-wedlock relationship? Busted. <clears throat> bring her out. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And what did she bring out? She brought out a signet and a cord, and a staff. And a signet, historians tell us, is probably like a stamp, you know, almost like a signature that you could roll or seal on some document. So men of importance would have a signet that's unique to them. And Tamar's no fool. She set up the strategy uh, pretty insightfully, and she took those very things that would catch her father-in-law red-handed, and so she presented them and said, I'm pregnant by the one to whom these belong. And then all of a sudden, like a ton of bricks, the sin of Judah has found him out. And he is caught red-handed and guilty. He is the one by whom his daughter-in-law is about to bear twi twins. And how does he respond? Well, I suggest, I submit to you that the grace of the Lord is on Judah when Judah, 26, identified them and said, then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. 
So this man went from self-righteous, I'm going to be the judge over her, and kill her for her immorality, to saying, oh, actually, she's more righteous than I am. And his first act of repentance is to change his habits of immorality, profligate living. He did not know her again. And as the story continues, more fruit of Judah's repentance is to be seen. Without turning there, for further study, you might mark chapter 44. And in that chapter, Judah begins to intercede in verses 33 and 34 for one of his father, Jacob's favorite sons, Benjamin in this case, not knowing that he's interceding before Joseph, whom he had sold into exile, his brothers had anyway, so many years before. But as Judah is pleading for the life and the well-being and the return of his brother Benjamin to his father, he says, take me. Use me as collateral. And there's been a change in Judah. The old Judah, before he repented, would use others to his advantage. The new Judah, after he uh, turned from his sin, is interceding in a self-sacrificial way on behalf of one whom his father loved more than him. This is a testimony of grace. We wouldn't know about this transformation in Judah's life if chapter 38 didn't give us the gory details of his sin. But we can see the amazing grace on Judah when we witness how deep a pit God's grace, His Spirit, repentance, and salvation can truly pull you out of. Have you ever been in a pit that deep? Or do you know someone else who is? The testimony of grace in this story is profound indeed. And it's meant to illustrate that we should not give up hope. If God has not instantly killed that individual who you think is irredeemable, there yet remains opportunity for his grace to pull them up. So let us pray that he would. And let us not respond in self-righteous, oh, they're too far gone. That's like Judah when he says, go ahead and kill her for her sin. It will make me look righteous. Not revealing the contents of his heart. But as the Lord did, and as he turned from his sin, he became a transformed mind. And this testimony of grace helps us to understand the record of chapter 38. Not only grace unto Judah, but also grace unto Tamar. Tamar, and indeed, she becomes the first and several others who I call women of the genealogy. It was very unusual that a woman would be recorded in a Near East genealogy. But there are five of them recorded in Matthew chapter 1. Tamar is the first. <clears throat> Let's turn there. Matthew chapter 1. In past Christmas messages, we've highlighted this before. Perhaps you recall that the grace of God is evident by certain strategic names in the lineage of Jesus. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And there are particular women who are highlighted. Notice verse 3. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, familiar names, by who? Tamar. So Tamar is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And she, her name is extraordinarily highlighted. Verse 5. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Who is Rahab? She was a prostitute. Remember her story and her salvation from Jericho? Her repentance and incorporation into the people of God. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by who? Ruth. Ruth, the Moabite, descendant of a son by incest. Again, Lot's, uh, by Lot and his daughter and so forth. 
And then we see, verse 6, Jesse, the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by who? The wife of Uriah. Her name, of course, is Bathsheba. But the listing of her husband reminds us of the cruel murder and the adultery that created this circumstance. Nevertheless, Bathsheba, in so many words, is highlighted. Then finally, Mary herself. 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So I submit to you that Tamar, in this horrible circumstance that anybody would blush to have the world read for centuries, received the grace of God. And she is therefore known in the rest of Scripture, not as the one who deceived her father-in-law by faking prostitution to commit incest with him, but instead as one by God's grace and providence in the lineage of Christ by whom the Messiah would one day come when her son would have a son and so forth, all the way to the coming of Jesus Christ, Tamar's Savior, all the way to the coming of Jesus Christ, Judah's Savior, Bathsheba's Savior, Rahab's Savior, Mary's Savior, your Savior and mine if you know him today. The testimony of grace as the scriptures continue to unfold unto Judah and unto Tamar is helpful to understand the troubles of Judah listed in Genesis 38. Number three, and related, the kingdom lineage. Understanding Jacob's troubles in the context of future events, the lineage of kings, there had been a promise to Abraham that kings would come from you. And wouldn't you know it from Perez, son by incest, twin, born at this time of this ungodly relationship between, Tara, uh, between Tamar excuse me, and Judah, kings would come. Turn with me to Ruth chapter 4. <clears throat> Ruth is just an incredible oasis of redemption as a book in the Old Testament. The interrupt, or the, similar to our text today, the corruption of the era of the book of Judges is interrupted by redemptive grace as we see God doing miracles in the midst of such flagrant immorality. So the book of Judges closes, and then appropriately, the book of Ruth opens. In Ruth chapter 4, we see as this Moabite becomes actually through leveret marriage, or an, an aspect of it, is to be married and becomes pregnant, we see that there is a blessing that's proclaimed over her. And this is really something, Ruth 4, 11 through 12. All the elders were at the gate, and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Rachel and Leah. That was a marital circumstance in Jacob's life that was fraught with all kinds of dysfunction and immorality. Multiple wives, strife in the camp, so forth. Yet God redeemed that situation. And now their legacy is invoked as a blessing over Ruth, this Moabite, and her husband Boaz, that they might be fruitful and multiply. They go on. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of who? Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife. He went into her, and the Lord gave her conception. She bore a son. And the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. Later, 
as the genealogy of this son is given, we see interestingly in verse 18 that it begins with Perez and ends with David. Now the generations of Perez, Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nehashan, Nehashan fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Turns out that Perez, the twin son, born to Judah and Tamar, would be a progenitor of kings, even King David himself. The kingdom lineage would be accomplished and would uh, fulfill the promises to Abraham of old by this unlikely means. And this brings up an amazing truth in the Gospels, that the covenant continues by way of the astounding covenant son, a surprise, a miracle, a redemptive situation, unlikely, unforeseen, counterintuitive to the ways of man, yet God raises up that individual to save. We see this all through scriptures, and of course it's anticipating Jesus Christ. A few examples, we see it in Ishmael versus Isaac, an astounding covenant son, born to old age, almost 100 years old, and Abraham uh, bears finally, according to the covenant promise, the one who would carry forth the lineage of the Messiah, and Isaac is born. But he's, of course, opposed by Ishmael to some degree. There's strife in the home. But then the next generation, Isaac, are, uh, and as we continue beyond there, Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And there again, there's conflict. And there's a promise. The older shall serve the younger. And though the stronger and more capable might be man's first choice, just like in the case of David versus Saul, head and shoulders above the rest, the people's choice, but God looks on the heart. So similarly, in Jacob and Esau, the older shall serve the younger, and the astounding covenant son carries forth the lineage. And so it is repeated, this theme. In our chapter today, verse 38, sons, twins by incest, in an astounding way, first the one son reaches his hand out, and the other pulls him back into the womb, as it were, elbows past him, this would be Perez, and Perez thus is born. And he would be the lineage or the progenitor of kings, the great, great, whatever, grandfather of David himself, and the great, 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 and so forth grandfather of Jesus Christ, an astounding covenant son. This all looked forward to a day where a lowly child, unassuming to everyone else, would be laid in a manger, first worshipped by lowly shepherds. But that... Uh, remember the story of Joseph is messianic ascension, ascending from the pits to reign and to rule. And so Jesus ascended from manger to cosmic judge at the right hand of the Father as heir to the kingdoms of the earth even today, putting all his enemies under his feet until each one is under his footstool. And the world and its surface is covered with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea and its kingdom is forever fully manifest and inaugurated in the new heavens and new earth. No one aside for those whose eyes were opened by the Holy Spirit would have recognized that power within that tiny, infant, helpless, vulnerable baby lying in a trough where animals are fed. But he was the astounding covenant son. And it was astounding in the course of redemptive history that in spite of sin and human depravity, God preserved his means 
of the Messiah arriving by way of the covenant family. He did this in the case in an astounding way in Genesis 38 when a, when a, a breach was made, so to speak. So there is this surprising and astounding circumstance even at the birth of Perez in verse 27. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. When she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. Well, spoke too quickly. Verse 29. And as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. So what did they name the kid? Breach. That's what Perez means. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. The name of this young boy, this infant, Perez, or Breach, what does it signify? Well, let me submit the royal and glorious purposes of God breaking through despite seemingly irredeemable circumstances. The glorious and royal purposes of God breaking through despite seemingly irredeemable circumstances. And in the further unfolding of God's purposes in the line of Perez, Judah's troubles are set in context. And we see that the grace of God in spite of sin. Let me close with one final point this morning, touching upon the holiness of the Messiah. I submit to you, understanding Judah's troubles in light of the context of future events helps us to recognize the holiness of Jesus. Jesus Christ is singular in his righteousness and in his, and in his sinlessness, his holiness. His merit is magnified by contrast to all who came before him, even those who are privileged to be in the covenant line. And there's a picture of this as our story unfolds. We turn over only to chapter 39 and we see a stark contrast already. Now, think of all the immorality in Judah's household and then contrast that to Joseph in verse 6, the next chapter. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, speaking of Potiphar. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now, Joseph was, a handsome, was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in the house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as, he, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. What a contrast. This is a young man who fears the Lord. Joseph illustrates the holiness of Jesus by type. It wasn't that Joseph wasn't a sinner. It's that Joseph, in the record, in contrast to Judah, illustrates how Jesus was righteous, and singularly so. Think of the difference between these two men. One of them is so far from home, everyone thinks he's dead. And this lady is throwing herself at him. And what does he do? Because he fears the Lord and is faithful to the covenant of marriage, even is faithful to Potiphar's marriage to his wife, he resists her advances, even at the cost of his own false accusation and eventual imprisonment, and without regret. Big difference from 38.1. Happened at the time of Judah. 
He went down from his brothers. Remember that language, up versus down? This indicates looking for trouble. He's going down. That is, in the picture language, it's a descent from the high places and the place of maintaining your identity and holiness before the Lord. And furthermore, he went down from his brothers, leaving behind his family connections and the covenant identity. And then he does what? He turns aside. This is due to looking for trouble, putting himself in, a, in an, or a seeking out temptation and immorality and doing so with the Canaanites. He went down, left his brothers from his brothers, and he turned aside. Not so the holiness of Jesus Christ typified or signaled, represented in, Joseph, in the contrast of Joseph. Joseph was a righteous man, and he was righteous, of course, by the grace of God, himself ultimately a sinner. However, in as far as Joseph was a type of the holiness of Christ, Jesus, of course, is the fulfillment. Jesus is singularly righteous. There is no one who has any merit except him, and no one can, uh, is, and all are unrighteous and judged guilty of sin except for him. Without time to turn there, you could study Luke chapter 2, where even in his upbringing and in his youth, Jesus was without corruption. He, as we pray over our kids and recognize in Scripture, grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And at the tender age of 12, was an expert in the law such that he could take all of the well-learned PhD, double PhD expert teachers of the day to school and train them all about the continuity and the message and the themes and the importance and the memory of God's law. After all, he was the Word made flesh. This was the true Messiah. The holiness of Christ is magnified by contrast. When we see the difference between him and anyone else, we're tempted to elevate as a hero. We should not. The message of Genesis and the whole scriptures is the merits of Christ alone. The merits of Christ alone are the means of salvation. If you place your trust in Judah, you would be let down. If you place your trust in Joseph, you would be let down. The evidence later in his rule that he did not always follow the law of God, and certainly if you knew him in his heart, you'd find that he was a sinner in Adam like the rest of us. If you place your trust in Tamar, you would be let down. Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, Mary. If you place your trust in the merits of anyone else, you'll find insufficient to save. Jesus Christ, in the message of Scripture, refutes all the self-righteousness and all the works righteous heresies that are still tempting and popular even today. Think of Catholicism, for instance. On Catholicism, formally speaking... Oh, it's a record quick change there. <laughs> I'm glad I had the presence of mind to have a couple of spare batteries. <clears throat> Let me give you just a couple application points by contrast. These days... It is still popular to trust in the merits, not of Christ alone, but of self-righteousness or other kinds of heresies. For instance, in Catholicism, there's such a thing as congruous merit. And what this means is that there is merit that we, in congruency or alongside the merits of Jesus Christ, are required to uphold. And if we fall short, we can, on Catholicism, appeal to something called the treasury of the merits of the saints, who had like superordinate merit, I can't remember the term, and so when the Catholic 
uh, individual would pray to, praise to a saint, formally speaking, they're invoking that extra grace and merit that they've saved up that could be credited to their account. And then furthermore, we go down the line of heresy, there's something called the Immaculate Conception, which doesn't refer to Jesus, though Catholicism holds that Jesus was immaculate in his conception, but Mary, Mary must be held immaculate. Why? Because she was the mother of God. So, uh, formally speaking, on Catholicism, the merits of Jesus Christ were preemptively applied to Mary so that she was born and conceived, in fact, without original sin. Well, then it's no, it stands to reason that Mary is seen as someone very special and can help you get to God. Thus, many Catholics affirm and venerate Mary as something like a co-redemptrix, a redeemer alongside, someone to give you closer access to Jesus. Well, then it stands to reason, does it not? Let's follow this logic. Shouldn't the grandmother of the mother of God be also without sin? How about the great-grandmother of the mother of God? Shouldn't they also be without sin? Do you see the problem here? You go back to the line of Jesus in the, through the line of Jesus in the Bible, the Bible is not shy about pointing out that the line of Christ was not established based on the merits of the individuals. You had everything from prostitutes to incest happening along the way. But why did Jesus, why did God order that he would come by way of such a line to proclaim to us today that we are saved not by the merits of anything congruous or anything in and of ourselves or anything in the purity of a bloodline, so to speak, but the merits of Christ alone? Because God is jealous for his glory and there is only one righteous. There's only one who is born without original sin since Adam's fall, and that is Jesus Christ himself. And the scriptures are setting us up to appreciate the merits of Christ alone. And there is only one gospel. Paul says, if you preach another one, some alteration along the lines of what I've just suggested, you might as well be anathema, consider it a demonic teaching. Throw it out, reject it. There is one gospel, one Christ, and the merits of him alone are sufficient for salvation. And this is a message that is made more clear when we consider it in the contrast of chapter 38 of our passage today. And in summary, I hope we can see today a few deeper realities perhaps of the reason for this record in Scripture when we understand Judah's troubles in the context of what we've mentioned, the salvation of God's people, the testimony of grace, the kingdom lineage, and the holiness of Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the message of your Holy Scripture that reinforces to us, Lord, that Jesus Christ is the hero of the story, the Savior of man, the only perfect sacrifice, the sin sinless, without spot or blemish, lamb that was crucified on our behalf. We pray that this message would go forth and reinforce us. Lord, strengthen us to walk in a manner worthy of our call to leave behind any sins of whatever indulgence or self-righteousness that may come and obscure the truth of your holy gospel. We also pray that if there are any in the hearing of this message that have not bowed their knee, we know that in their idolatry they're trusting something else to secure their future. We pray that they would repent and abandon their self-righteousness and abandon their sin and cry out for salvation in Christ alone, recognizing his perfection and merits. We thank you, Lord, for this glorious truth. Thank you for making it available to us through the gospel and the proclamation of your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. May it strengthen and equip your church and call the lost to repentance and faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.